Welcome to Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And today we bring you Sex Therapy, What Social Workers Should Know. Do you think Spotify will mark this episode as explicit? Yeah, it's going to be a sexy time. I'm sure it always is with the two of you anyway, but... (laughs) (laughs) Spicy. Yes. (laughs) Stay with us. We are excited to have with us today one of my favorite social workers, Jennifer Moninger. Hi. Did I say that right? Oh, yeah, that's fine. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's Moninger, isn't Money, it? Moninger. I mean, it depends on who in my family you ask, actually. Oh. So, really, who cares? All right. So, for purposes of this episode, we're going to refer to Jennifer and Jen. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm Jennifer. So Jennifer Tunning will be Jennifer. The yes. classic Jennifer. Yeah, and our guest will be Jen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just so make sure that our listeners don't get confused with the two Jennifers. Mm-hmm. Or the JJs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. JJ, the jet plane. Yeah. What? It's like a PBS show from the 90s. <laughs> now I'm too young. So, Jen. Jen. Yeah. How do you know uh, Jennifer? This is the first time I'm meeting you. So yeah. I'm excited to hear how you guys connected and, and how this relationship started yeah how I don't know who started it but there was a point at which that I was your clinical supervisor yeah for your LCSW it was an exciting time it was I was contracted with the company that you used to work for and apparently we we overlapped in some time at another agency but did not know about Mm -hmm. each other because that was a very large agency so Mm -hmm. Yeah, when, when, when was, was that? This? Like, oh, yeah, yeah was I was this? trying to think, like, three years ago? Four? I worked there in 2018. Oh, okay. But when did I start? When did we actually meet properly? That's got to be... 2020? 2020. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we started, and then the world shut down. I think Pandemic we, friendship. Yeah, <laughs> I th- totally. I think we probably met in the fall of 19, because then yeah. by the time I was onboarded to start, then You were about was, to go to Spain. Oh, yeah, that was a great trip. <laughs> so that was November of 2019. Yeah, that was a, that was a great time. Radical. Yeah. So for those of you who don't have the privilege of knowing her in quote-unquote real life here, mm-hmm. uh, Jennifer is an LCSW and ASEC certified sex therapist. She holds a certificate in sexual health from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And she is the founder of Arizona Sexual Empowerment Counseling Services, AZSEX, a private practice in Central Phoenix focused on combating sexual shame and improving intimacy and sexual wellness in the community. Wow, that's quite the impressive resume. I'm so excited to have you here and have this spicy conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know if it will be spicy, but this isn't, you know, that's how it works in my mind. But um, so excited to hear about you and your background and the great work that you do here in the community. I think feel like um, sex therapy is not something that we talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, very openly, at least. Uh, There's still a lot of like taboo in a community, especially and you know, me being Latina in the Latino community and Hispanic community is something that just, just a big no no. You know, you don't talk about those things, you don't go to a sex therapist. Mm-hmm. It's just uh still very behind behind doors. So I'm excited that we're having this conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm delighted. I do want to throw out there you mentioned ASECT, not everybody knows what that is. Mm-hmm. So ASECT is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors and Therapists. 
So it's uh, A-A-S-E-C-T. They are our certifying body. Um, they do a lot of, you know, for any kind of um, sexuality uh, education, therapy, and counseling. Sex counseling is actually something that medical providers do, so some mm. people get that confused. Um, sex therapists are uh, the social workers, MFTs, mm. uh, LPC folks. Sexuality counselors are medical folks who Got have gotten additional uh, training and certification in sexual health for their medical practice. Okay. So ASECT, everybody is under that umbrella. Awesome. Yeah. So in speaking of that, uh, we have some more questions for you today, as well as we asked people on our social media what they wanted to know about sex therapy, and they had some great questions. So we'll start off with some more general ones so we can kind of get grounded in the topic, and then we'll move into some more specific ones. Okay. Well, here we go. First question is, well, what what is, what is sex therapy, um, and what are some of the reasons a client will seek sex therapy? Sure. I mean, that's a big question. What is sex therapy? Uh, I would say sex therapy is uh, counseling for people who want to make any kind of changes in the way that they show up sexually in their lives. Okay. Uh, it could be orientation. It could be, you know, exploring sexual orientation or gender identity. It could be experiencing uh, pain during sex and wanting to figure out where that's coming from and what to do with that. It could be um, desire discrepancies, we call it, which is where uh, people in a couple have different levels of sexual desire and they start to have a lot of conflict around that. Uh, it could be any number of things. People who feel like their sexual behavior is a little bit out of control sometimes and they want to make some changes with that. Um, those are kind of the big things that I work with. Also, people who are poly or want to be polyamorous or want to open their relationship or explore some uh, fluidity to their relationship mm. structure. That's something that we work with a lot. Did you work mostly with couples or with individuals? It, you know, it's 50-50, I would say. Um, right now I'm seeing a lot of individuals. Sometimes it ends up being a lot of couples uh, or throuples, I would even say sometimes. Mm. Mm. Um, talking about poly, you know, sometimes we work yeah. with constellations. It gets a little complicated. Um, so yeah, Constellations, I, mean, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, my brother's boyfriend calls them constellations because everybody's a star. Aww. I love it. I love it. That's how I want my partner to talk about me. <laughs> I am a star. <laughs> so I am in this constellation. I'm like, wait, what? What? Yeah, because there are multiple yeah. constellations, mm -hmm. all in the same yeah. galaxy, though. Yep, mm, that's deep. We can take this to the ends of the earth, man. Yeah, mm -hmm. literally. <laughs> Who's the sun? Oh well, sometimes a star. Is well, it depends. It depends on your poly structure, really. Not everybody is hierarchical, Jennifer. Mm, true. Uh, so it depends on what you're looking for. But I think the more the more um, I don't know if the traditional is really a word I would even use, but the more typical uh, term for that is a polycule. Mm. Mm. Okay. So different polyamorous structures. But yeah, so we work with that. We work with a lot of kinky people, um, a lot of like LGBT couples who just want a really affirming environment. Mm. Um, but really anybody who is seeking some kind of sexual empowerment, uh, some kind of shift in their sense of their sexual selves. Um, or 
grappling with a shift that they've already experienced. Mm -hmm. So there's a big piece of the work that has to do with grief also. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because we work a lot with people who have lost something uh, in their relationships, in their sexuality, and we have to figure out, is it something they can change? Is it something they can get back? Or is it something we have to accept that we can't? Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that you probably wouldn't think when you think of sex therapy is uh, that it in- involves some grief mm-hmm. work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, I mean, there's yeah a whole, a, a lot to unfold there. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's so interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah. A big part, I, I, I missed a part too, which is something we work with a lot is infidelity. Mm-hmm. So yep. of course there's some grief components to that. Mm-hmm. A lot of infidelity is really rooted in what we call erotic conflicts, mm-hmm. which is uh, two people who have very different senses of their sexuality, very different desires. And sometimes one person chooses to break their relationship agreements and go explore their desires elsewhere without their partner's consent. And we end up doing infidelity repair mm-hmm. in addition to navigating those erotic conflicts. So. Wow. It's a lot of complexity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no kidding. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about some of the reasons somebody would seek out sex therapy. What are some of the common misconceptions or things that maybe sex therapy isn't or wouldn't be the right fit for? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so sex therapy, the biggest thing that gets to me about, I, I guess this is sort of a misconception, is that as a therapist, if you're comfortable talking about sex, you can call yourself a sex therapist. Mm. So sex therapy is not a, what do they call it, a protected term? Yeah, title Um, protected. Yeah, it's not title protected. So anyone can claim to be a sex therapist without necessarily having the education uh, or the sort of self ex- like lived experience mm-hmm. or um, understanding of the topic to really back up that claim. So I see a lot of clients who come to me after seeing someone else who said they were a sex therapist and some pretty weird stuff occurred in the sessions mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or the clients became very uncomfortable because the, mm-hmm. the therapist was kind of interrogating them in a way that was not really showing good boundaries yeah. or was not really showing a good awareness of all of their needs and issues. So that you bring up a very interesting point. So what are some of the things that let's say that if I want to um, start sex therapy, what are mm-hmm. some of the things that I need to look for in a therapist? Yeah. Uh, look at like their education or their mm-hmm. background or what are some of the things that someone that is looking to have this type of services um, mm-hmm. needs to be aware of to get a quality good services for someone that is actually um, – qualified to do this. Yeah. I think the biggest question is asking the therapist what brings them to the work and what is their Mm -hmm. background in this work. Um, You know, I don't want to say that everybody needs someone who's ASEC certified because that's a pretty privileged position. It costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time. Um, There aren't a lot of us in Arizona right now uh, because it does take, you know, it's an extra year of training. Plus you have to do two extra years. uh, You have to do... um, 
300 clinical hours and 50 supervision hours that are sex therapy specific. Mm. And of course you have to pay for all of that. Mm. So I don't want to say like you have to find someone who's ASEC certified. Um, certainly you can. And uh, a lot of folks who are certified also have group practices where they are training other people and they have different fee structures and it's not always going to be like the ASEC certified person. Um, so a lot of people can do this work, but I think understanding what is their training, what's their background in it, um, how did they come to this work? You know, some folks who uh, call themselves sex therapists do so because they have some lived experience with mm -hmm. a community. You mm -hmm. know, they have their own experience with um, being kinky or being in open relationship structures or um, different types of, you know, being in the LGBT community and being comfortable talking about sexuality and orientation and identity in that community because of their lived experience. And I don't want to invalidate that either. Um, but I think looking at, you know, as a client seeking services, what do you want to work on? And um, what are the questions that feel important? You know, what are the qualifications that feel important to you mm -hmm. to find in somebody to help you work on that thing that you want to work on? Yeah. Um, that, that's a, a great segue to an, our next question. And speaking of um, oh, yeah. seeking seeking therapy, uh, what do you think are the the goals or strengths being developed or achieved through sex therapy? Yeah, I thought about this one a lot. Uh, it's a big question. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing is empowerment to me mm -hmm. and uh, developing insight and self-awareness, how you want to show up in your sex life and in your intimate relationships And what are the barriers that you're experiencing to showing up the way that you want to show up? And then we see what do we do with that. I think um, certainly breaking through the shame barriers. I know there's kind of a question about mm -hmm. purity culture later. A lot of people come to sexuality with a lot of shame or guilt or messaging from our culture yep. that is not pleasure-focused. And we start to look at how do we find more pleasure in life? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people who struggle with sexual desire, they don't have room for other types of pleasure mm -hmm. in their lives either. And so it becomes a lot broader. So this is, we're kind of covering multiple things at <laughs> once. One of the other misconceptions about sex therapists is that all we talk about is sex and that's all we can talk about. But we have to be independently licensed before we can be certified in sex therapy. Okay. So we have to have experience with depression, anxiety, um, working with kind of OCD, you know, different sorts of, like the generalist work that everybody has. Because maybe you will say that issues um, in related to sex might also be not an isolated issue, but mm -hmm. it would be a symptom of oh, another yeah. condition that is mm -hmm. just... Uh, You know, going along with with issues that the person is having with their sick lives. Yeah. yeah, and we have to be able to look at. You know, a lot of times people start to care about something when it impacts their sex life, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. especially penis owners. I would say, but penis owners. <laughs> yeah. But but that's anecdotal, of course. But a lot of people, we only start. It really starts to bother us when it shows up in our sex life. But if we yeah. look at something that is happening sexually, a lot of times. Uh, you know, if we're very anxious during sex, we're also very anxious in other parts of life. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to kind of help people navigate all of that. Um, the other misconception that I want to put out there for, I, th I assume the audience here is a lot of other social workers and therapists, mm -hmm. is that sex therapists and sex addiction therapists are very, very different. Very different. We are not the same thing. 
I am not a sex addiction therapist. Um, we have a lot of philosophical disagreements about how to approach out-of-control sexual behavior. Uh, sex addiction therapists use an addiction model, which I don't believe to be evidence-based. Okay. Um, that that may be controversial. You might get some hate mail about that, <laughs> but it is true. Um, the APA agrees with me so far. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have a diagnosis for that. So we don't do, quote-unquote, sex addiction therapy. We do approach compulsive sexual behavior using a model that is more holistic, in my opinion, that looks at attachment, that looks at uh, medical side, that looks at the emotional side, that looks at the relational side, that explores erotic conflicts, that mm -hmm. tries to see all of the pleasure-centered elements that play a role in out-of-control sexual behavior. And I think this is, when we think about transitional models, this is something that we see not only in sex therapy, but the way that we talk about addiction in general. So to give kind of a way that we've moved through this. And, you know, for me, it's exciting to see that people have kind of caught up to where social work has historically always been is we started out with the rational actor model that people did things in their lives and had complete control over that. Mm -hmm. You know, if a teenager is breaking into houses and you ground her, she'll probably stop. But if somebody is stealing food for their family and you put them in jail, they're still hungry. Right. So people cannot make all the choices in their life. Then we move to the disease model. This is the, your brain is broken, you have an addiction, your chemicals are imbalanced, the mm -hmm. medical community is the only people who can help you. And it pathologizes and patronizes the people it intends to serve. And there are some communities that still exist there. ACM is one of them when we talk about more traditional addictions with substances. But most communities, so SAMHSA and the APA, now operate out of the biopsychosocial model, which if you're a social worker listening to this, this is bread and butter. This mm -hmm. has been our day one, Jay Dunham's in the whole house, you know, <laughs> kind of stuff. So the rest of society is finally catching up to the lens that people exist in an ecosystem. People have multifaceted mm -hmm. layers. So it sounds like where sex therapy operates from is very much in line with where social worker is mm -hmm. and has been, mm -hmm. um, but not everybody is quite there yet. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of debate uh, about these models and what's, you know, what's going to happen. The ICD, are we on 11, 10, 10 or 11 now? Yeah. The ICD 10 um, has a diagnosis for, you know, and now my, my, words are escaping me, but they have sort of a diagnosis for compulsive sexual behavior. Mm. Um, they don't call it sex addiction, but they do have a diagnosis. We haven't adopted that in the U.S. yet. There's a lot of debate about that. Um, it's a tough issue because mm -hmm. sex therapists don't claim that there is no such thing as compulsive sexual behavior. So mm. I want to make that clear too. Um, we're not saying it's not a real thing, but the, the approach of the disease model and sex addiction leaves a lot out for a lot of people. And I've also seen it be harmful to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen a lot of clients come to me from a sex addiction treatment model where they were conditioned or they conditioned themselves to have no desire at all. Wow. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the shaming mm -hmm. of their sexual desires. Yeah, yeah. 
And there are treatment facilities for sex addiction who claim to have really good results or claim to have an evidence-based model, but everything is proprietary and they don't really publish anything. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know what's going on there or how effective it really is in the long term. So I just want to make that distinction because it's happened a lot even very recently that when I look for a colleague to refer to, mm -hmm. people want to send me to a sex addiction therapist. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in our community, people just don't seem to realize that there is a big a difference. difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, and again, I think it happens with other things in our community, the way that we are shifting our language around mm -hmm. other types of addiction, that yeah. things can be compulsive, things can be chaotic or out of control, mm -hmm. but shifting everything towards the disease model and taking the autonomy away from the person and yeah. not realizing that sex, drugs, insert anything mm -hmm. here helps people meet really important needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the the thing with it too is that it, it loses a lot of nuance. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if we can just say we have an addiction, then we don't have to look at our erotic conflicts. We don't have to look at the things that we're really ashamed of that are leading us to maybe go outside of our relationship to seek other, you know, to get our needs met in a way that maybe feels scary to us. Uh, we have to look at why does that feel scary? You know, what are the things within us that we're not comfortable talking about, that we're not comfortable facing? And if we can just say, I'm an addict and I'm sick, that's very much in line with this cultural narrative that we should be ashamed of our sexuality mm -hmm. and that there is something sick about it. And if it's not this sort of vanilla, cis, heteronormative sexuality, then we have a problem. Right. right. I think that goes, again, moving nicely through here. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so how do you help someone feel comfortable being vulnerable about their sex life and talking about it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's so this is where the training part comes in. Uh, we have to be comfortable with it first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in sexual health, in, in my training, we learn to talk about your clitoris like it's your elbow. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be able to talk about sex like it's anything else yeah. um, without invalidating the challenges that our clients come with mm -hmm. and the stress that they have in sharing with us. But we have to create an environment where, um, it's okay to talk about any of these things. You know, I start off, I have kind of a spiel that I start off with all my new clients. And part of it is, you know, I've been doing this a long time and it takes a lot to surprise me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm comfortable hearing whatever you're comfortable telling me. I think one of my favorite things you ever said to me, um, if you didn't catch it earlier, Jennifer, other Jennifer was my clinical supervisor, <laughs> um, is when clients come to ask and ask, is this normal? Mm -hmm. And your response of if it's happening to you, it's normal. Oh, yeah. I like that. And how freeing that is for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it's, uh, if it's not what's typical, um, I, it's, it has to be abnormal, right? Mm -hmm. And I think especially with anything related to sex life, uh, we we hear so little about it. You know, mm -hmm. even our close friends and the people close to us, we, we just don't talk about that stuff. You know, yeah. uh, it's, it's something that um, we just, you keep it in the bedroom, you keep it with your partner, mm -hmm. but you don't really talk about any um, issues that you're having or the messaging that you're getting from family or from your uh, your 
culture, culture mm-hmm. um, that, you know, sex is something that you just don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless is with the purposes of procreation, mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. don't do it. And if you're doing it for pleasure, it's bad. Um, so that, that, that's something that I'm also interested in. You know, I, I mentioned in the, at the beginning that coming from the Latino culture, um, being part of the Latino culture, that's something that it's, it's so, it's still very prevalent of how, um, if you're having sex outside of marriage, it's bad. If you are not doing it with the purpose of procreation, it's bad. If it's just for mm-hmm. pleasure, it's bad. Um, and, you know, it's just, uh, so how do you, how do, how do you help clients get past these messages um, that stem from religion that this is bad unless you're married, unless it's for purposes of having kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think this, that's kind of a nice segue from the normal question. Um, we have to get out of the black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. And to me, some of that is really foundational. You know, going back to what a sex therapist do, and, and we have to be able to wear a lot of hats. Part of what we do is like kind of foundational CBT. Mm-hmm. You know, let's notice how black and white we are. Like this is good or bad, and there's nothing in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, working here, I work with a lot of folks who are uh, still part of the LDS church or have left the LDS church or um, Catholic, Christian, you know, mm-hmm. pretty conservative upbringings and starting to look at how that's impacting the way they show up in their sexual relationships versus the way they want to show up. And a lot of it is that black and white thinking. You know, this is good or bad, and there's nothing in between. Yeah. Um, we also have something I want to share. So my mentor, Doug Brown Harvey is my, one of my mentors. Um, I don't feel like I can talk about my place in this work without talking about him and how delightful he is. Um, he wrote the book on out of control sexual behavior with Michael Mm -hmm. Vigorito. So, um, they co-authored the treating out of the manual for treating out of control sexual behavior, which is a fantastic read. Mm -hmm. Um, very deeply rooted in motivational interviewing as well. Mm-hmm. I think he has probably the best understanding of motivational interviewing of anyone that I've ever seen. So if you want to just do a deep dive into that, even if you're like, I don't care about sex and I don't care what these people are talking about, um, it's still a great read for that. We'll make sure to add it to our list of resources for the episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so his website, the Harvey Institute, he talks about the six principles of sexual health. Okay. And that's something that we, I certainly use to guide all of my work. And, you know, the, the principles include consent, um, non-exploitation, so making sure that our behavior is not exploiting others. Um, and that includes breaking relationship agreements, right? Mm-hmm. Like infidelity, you know, that kind of falls under that exploitation category because we are taking advantage of our partners and their lack of awareness of what's going on. Um you know, we also have um, honesty as a part of it, uh, having shared values, understand, and that's understanding your values and being able to share them with others. Um, safety. Mm-hmm. So, and and you kind of define that for yourself. And we, I have a lot of dialogue with folks about that. What does sexual safety look like for you? Sort of general education around contraception and birth control and all of those pieces. Um, and then the last one is pleasure. And is the sex that you're having pleasurable? You know, one of the the top 10 questions that I ask people is, are you having the kind of sex that you want to be having in your life? And that kind of, I think... It's an icebreaker. It, open, it opens that door for the yeah. conversation. And it gets away from this sort of good, bad, mm-hmm. you know, is it pleasurable to you? Right. And I think one of the most important things I learned from you was that concept of moving the goalpost away Mm -hmm. from orgasm into Mm -hmm. pleasure Mm -hmm. and that sex isn't this binary 
orgasm is the end point. And if it didn't occur, then it's not sex or it's not good sex. Right. And helping folks redefine that and find language about that. Yeah, for sure. I think it's super important. And I think also that idea that the traditional kind of penetrative sex um, we call it PIV, penis and vagina intercourse, like that that's the gold sexual standard. Yeah. And that leaves out a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's into that. Not everybody can do that physically for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very heteronormative, certainly. And I think we have to push past some of these cultural narratives of like what is normal and not normal. And we have to look at pleasure. You know, Emily Nagoski is one of our gurus. She wrote Come As You Are, which mm-hmm. I've probably personally bought like 12 copies of yeah. for all women <laughs> yeah. in my life. Um, it's the best book for women. It's a great book. Ever. Yeah. If you're yes. a cis woman, read totally. it right now. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says pleasure is the measure. So how do we um, determine if our sex life is satisfying? How do we determine if our relationships, if our life in general is satisfying? You know, our, do we have access to pleasure in life or not? Um, and if not, how can we work towards that? Mm-hmm. You know, so this is where sex therapy, this is our bread and butter, right? So there's mindfulness to that. There's anxiety management to that. Um, there's a lot of pieces to um, how do we have a more pleasurable existence in this world and what are the obstacles to that? Yeah. And speaking of, um, you know, people may be presenting with particular problems like you were mentioning, anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not having pleasure in their life. Is sex therapy the right place for people who have sexual trauma? Would that be the best venue or what are kind of the components that would be unpacked or intersected in the kind of work you do with clients with that background? Yeah. Sometimes was my answer to that question. (laughs) Um, I think it depends a little bit on the therapist and how comfortable they are with trauma Um, Some sex therapists also have a lot of training in EMDR or IFS or, um, you know, somatic experiencing or some of these other um, models that are trauma treatment models. And so they incorporate that along with sex therapy and they work extremely well with sexual trauma and have very good outcomes for their clients. Mm -hmm. Um, Some like I, I just like I just like to focus on sex, and that's my thing. So I have found some really trusted colleagues that I refer out to if I see that somebody has trauma work to do. Um, I will sometimes continue to see them on a supplementary basis. Mm -hmm. So I might send them to some colleagues who are really great EMDR therapists that they could see weekly or they could see regularly to kind of work on those trauma roots, and we would definitely coordinate and collaborate, and I would continue to see them maybe once a month, to really talk about how is your trauma showing up in your sex life now? Mm -hmm. Um, What are the triggers that you're experiencing? How is it it impacting your ability to experience pleasure in your sex life now? And that's real. when we look at, like, strictly sex therapy, that's really kind of where we come at it from. And so if folks reach out to me and say, I have a lot of trauma, I think it's impacting my life, I think it's impacting... Um, my sex life, I will tell them all that. And I'll say, you know, I'm happy to meet with you and we can talk it through and see, um, you know, if you want to talk about how it's showing up in your sex life, how it's showing up in your relationship, how you communicate about it. um, That's something that I can work with you on. If I see that there's a lot of um, deeper roots, that there are a lot of things that are still unprocessed, I'm going to probably refer you to a colleague to work through that. And I can help you along the way also. I think that's some great myth busting too. I think mm-hmm. at least I remember being kind of raised up in grad school 
that your client cannot ever have more than one therapist mm. at once. And, okay. you know, you're going to break this person and confuse them. And what if you say contradictory things? And so, you know, if your client's in one kind of therapy, they cannot possibly benefit from another simultaneously. Mm-hmm. You cannot be all for all your clients. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a big scope of practice yeah. thing and a, a yeah. good myth to bust that this is an excellent example mm-hmm. of people acting within their scope of practice, within their scope of expertise together to have the best outcome for a client. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, you know, my husband said to me something that, ha- you know, sometimes your partner says something that makes you mad because it's true. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> and um, he said that I can't be, it's because he's getting tired of me doing all these trainings and, you know, we have a toddler and that's a lot for him sometimes. So he said, you, you know, you can't be the Swiss army knife of therapists. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. really true. Like a lot of us feel this pressure and it, I think it comes from imposter syndrome mm. That, you know, I have to know all the things and I have to get certified in all the things Mm -hmm. so I can do all the things. But I think this is a good, you know, segue back to pleasure, which is like, what do you like doing? Mm. You know, like I'm EMDR trained twice now. (laughs) And I tried, like, I was like, maybe I just didn't have great training. Maybe Like, I did it again. I just like don't like doing EMDR. Just and do your thing. Yeah. yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And I have, uh, like, as a client, I have been through EMDR and it has helped me tremendously. Like, I'm not trying to devalue it as a, as a you know, practice. practice modality. modality. Yeah. Uh, I'm not trying to devalue it or anything like that. But I just, like, it's very structured and it's very organized. And I am not. <laughs> I am not. So... I just don't like to do it. And so I was I I said to myself at some point like why am I trying to push myself to do this? Like yes, it's going to be helpful to some of my clients, but I also have lovely colleagues who are very great trauma therapists and I believe are also fairly sex positive and open to coordination yeah. and we can sh- you know we can kind of work together and I think that's a lot better experience. And I've had clients come back to me and say I feel like I have a really good treatment team. Mm-hmm. You know, wonderful. I feel like I'm getting all the things. I do the same thing with really high conflict. Mm. So I see couples and I just tell people from the beginning, you know, I'm happy to work with you on these things. But if I see that you're embedded in this conflict cycle that you really can't get out of, I'm going to send you to Therapy with Heart, you know, the mm-hmm. EFT folks who um, are genius at EFT and at really busting through uh, those conflict cycles for people. And I can keep seeing you for your, you know, polyamory conversations and your kinky conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, we can supplement. But I don't see us getting anywhere with that until you break through this conflict yeah. cycle that you're in. And, like, I'm just not here for that. Yeah. That's very important to recognize, you know, yeah. our own, not, I want to say limitations, but your um, scope of practice and yeah. what you feel comfortable doing. And, and your you sustainable don't. scope yeah. of practice, too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I know you could do EMDR if you had to, <laughs> but is that really sustainable, you know, yeah. for you yeah. or your clients and what mm-hmm. they're hoping to get out of it? And I, I think sometimes we're better off, you know, one of my mentors, uh, another person who did my kind of sex therapy supervision journey is Sally Foley. Uh, she wrote a wonderful book called Sex Matters for Women. Um, she is fully retired now uh, up in Michigan. She actually started the sexual health certificate program in Michigan that mm-hmm. I went through. So she is a pioneer in this work. She started the first um, sexual health certificate program. Um and got the University of Michigan to really endorse sexual health and sex therapy Mm. uh, in a way that I think really pushed 
the whole profession forward. So, you know, snaps yeah, for yeah. Sally mm-hmm. Foyle. Love her. Um, But she said to me once that uh, the people she's seen in this work, in this field, who are the happiest are people who kind of pick a niche Mm -hmm. and get really focused and really good at that niche. Even within sex therapy, because you heard me at the beginning, there's like 30 different things that we can do. Yeah. So what are the handful of things that you really love to do? And speaking of working with individuals from... Um, different backgrounds and different needs. Um, what about individuals with physical disabilities? Mm-hmm. Um, how how can sex therapy help these clients? Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, I thought about this question a lot too. This is not an area of sex therapy that I have worked with a whole lot. Um, but I do think that uh, a lot of sex therapists are very good. You know, the the my initial thought about this question was I sort of object to the structure of it, which is that people with physical disabilities need mm-hmm. help. I think everybody else needs help mm-hmm. with um, accepting and understanding and communicating about disabilities and or, or people who are differently abled, I would say. Uh, I think we have to work on not infantilizing people with different abilities. Um, we have to work on, you know, everybody wants a sex life. Well, most everybody wants some kind of sexual life or sexual experience, and it doesn't matter what their physical ability status is. How can we work to facilitate that? You know, how can we support them? in whatever their desires are and in accessing sexual pleasure because everybody wants to do that. This gets really controversial when we talk about developmental disabilities especially. Mm. Um, So there is a lot of conversation now about sexuality education for people with developmental disabilities because of everything that happened with Hacienda Healthcare, if you all Mm -hmm. are familiar with that. And consent and, you know, what they Mm -hmm. understand. Yeah. Was their understanding of sexual activity? Yeah. yeah. And I think the struggle is that, you know, folks with uh, developmental disabilities have um, adult bodies mm-hmm. and adult needs. hormones and adult <laughs> needs. Uh, and they still deserve education around that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tried to help do some workshops for the parents mm-hmm. um, and caregivers and guardians for folks with developmental disabilities. Um, before Hacienda even, we were trying to, I was working with a couple of orgs around here uh, who are doing day programs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were trying to sort of start a program for the participants, but we needed consent mm-hmm. from the guardians first. And we did a series of trying to um, have conversations with the guardians. Uh, I think we did, th- I want to say two or three different Um, segments of that trying to get buy-in and I think the entire time we had four people show up Mm -hmm. so it's a huge it's a huge challenge that we really see uh, we really see it as people who have different abilities can't be sexual uh, and that's really not the case at all have you have have you had a chance to watch the show love in the spectrum on Netflix. No. <laughs> um, I, I haven't watched the whole thing. I've seen like bits and pieces here, but it's I think it's so interesting because it um it brings up to to people's attention of how individuals with different different abilities, physical abi- uh, abilities and also mm-hmm. um developmental um yeah. yeah, how they they are uh Equally as worthy of love mm-hmm. and physical affection and all the other pleasurable things that that we enjoy, yeah. uh, regardless, mm-hmm. you know. So it's a uh, um, just curious. 
if you have seen the show. Um, no. But I think it follows a few couples mm-hmm. um, and how they navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, and also their families, you know, how uh, the level of involvement that their families have yeah. um, in their relationships. and It's, it's like more of a documentary, right? It's like yeah, real life yes. people. Yeah, yes, yes. It's live, yeah, real. There's real another one couples. I watched. So I had a baby and then, like, I don't watch TV anymore. Um, but before that, there was another show. It was a drama about a kid who is on the autism spectrum, and he wants to get a girlfriend. Mm. So the whole he's like sixteen or seventeen. So the whole series is kind of about his desire to have a girlfriend, mm. and how his parents deal with that, and yeah. what that looks like. It's really funny. It's a really great show, and the name of it is escaping me, which is terrible. It'll end up on the website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as we're talking about these different topics that we navigate through the context or through the lens of sex and pleasure, how does someone like a sex therapist help someone navigate their sexual orientation and start to, what are some ways that that's helpful or what are some things that you help people do to facilitate their own understanding and processing of how they show up in that way? Sure. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I know you mentioned that there was sort of a, a asexuality element to this question uh, or whoever asked it. There mm-hmm. was some debate about that. So, I mean, I think it depends on – it just depends a lot yeah. <laughs> on their history, on their current situation, on um, what distress they're experiencing and why, um, what is their experience of sexual pleasure, if any – who, what sorts of people was it with? How did they feel about that? Um, if they have any kind of solo sex experience or masturbation, if they look at any sexual imagery, what does that look like for them? Um, how has that evolved over time? You know, all of those things. When we're looking at asexuality, uh, Lori Brado actually is doing a lot of interesting work on asexuality mm-hmm. and trying to understand it better. So Lori Brado is, I want to say, in Vancouver, Somewhere, she's Canadian. And uh, it's a big place, I know. Somewhere up there. Um, she, But she does really phenomenal work. She's been on some podcasts. She wrote a book called Better Sex Through Mindfulness, which mm. is um, after Emily Nagoski's book. It's probably my second favorite read, um, especially for women who want to improve their sex life or see some change in their sex life. Uh, so Better Sex Through Mindfulness uh, is a great book. And now she has gone on to research asexuality. Mm. So she actually developed a scale, an assessment measure for asexuality that I like to use if people are inquiring about that, if they want to use it. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, this is not totally optional, but a lot of people come to me like, I've really wondered if I'm asexual mm-hmm. and I'm really curious what that means for me and I want to understand it better. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, uh, it's different for everybody. And we, I ask a lot of questions about why they feel that way and all the things we just talked about. And then I, towards the end, I say, we also have this scale. I can ask you these questions. Mm-hmm. We can see where it takes you. Um, And it's one of those things, you know, I think asexuality is on a spectrum also. Mm -hmm. Um, And everything's on a spectrum. Like I'm a big, you know, sex therapy. If you want to look at roots, we have to look at Kinsey, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I always want to say Alfred, maybe Albert Kinsey, Al. Anyway, Kinsey um, from IU, Indiana University, uh, in the 60s, maybe. 
he did he was the first one the first person certainly connected with the university to really do a lot of research on sexuality and um, surveying people in their sex lives and he he and kind of masters and Johnson a lot of folks are familiar with them mm-hmm. are sort of the earlier researchers in our world and um Kinsey found that he came up with the Kinsey scale, this idea that sexuality is on a spectrum uh, and not everybody is gay or straight or bi, but there are actually a lot of things in between all of those identities as well. And we all have access to those things. Um, I think asexuality is kind of similar. There's a lot, there's a spectrum. Um, You know, some people are really uh, repulsed by sex of any kind. Um, Then I always want to ask, how long has that been? Mm-hmm. Um, is it just this partner? Has it been always? Do you remember ever having pleasure? Do you remember ever having sexual desire in your life? Because um, asexuality really is pretty global usually. Mm-hmm. So if it is just with this partner or if it is just since I had kids or since this thing happened or if we can trace the roots, then we can develop a better understanding of that. Um, so, yeah, a lot of layers there. Yeah. Um, and as we are wrapping up um, our time together, um, as a social worker, what are the options to gain knowledge on this area or to become a sex therapy provider? Um, tell us a little bit about what your path looks like or where you started and when you decided you wanted to be a sex therapist and how um, you got from there to here. Yeah, great question. So my path, I'll sort of answer in reverse. Well, I think by answering the second question, I'll probably answer the first one too. But um <laughs> My path, so I was, uh, I came up in the agencies here, you know, like a lot of people do. Um, When I graduated, I worked for a nonprofit doing substance abuse treatment work uh, for adults. And then I wanted to kind of do something different and get some broader awareness of things. So I went to work at the state psych hospital. So um, for folks who, and that's where I got uh, probably half my clinical hours for my LCSW. So for folks who aren't familiar with the state psychiatric hospital, they have a wing called ACPTC, which is the Arizona Community Protection and Treatment Center. So that is a part of the state hospital that is devoted to uh, housing the highest, uh, the most likely to reoffend of the violent sex offenders in the state. So deep breath, difficult topic here. Yeah. Um, and nobody would go work over there. You know, when you go there as a therapist, you are kind of, there's different wings. There's mm-hmm. the civil side, um, which is kind of people who are civil commitments. Uh, that means they came in through some kind of maybe safety petition, um, but they were, uh, you know, so they're there uh, kind of against their will, but they call it a civil commitment uh, if it's like a, a permanently and acutely disabled kind of situation. And then there's the... Uh, Forensic side, which is where they work with folks who are, um, they call it GEI, guilty except insane. So they committed a crime, but they were found to have been um, under the influence of some kind of mental health um, problem or mental disorder that contributed to that. And so they serve their prison sentence at the state hospital instead of in prison. And then we have ACPTC, which is the sex offender part of it. So uh, we kind of circulate everywhere when you work there, at least when I did a while ago. And I was the only one who was willing to kind of go to the sex offender side and see what that was about. Um, Not a lot of people wanted to work over there. Not a lot of people um, felt any interest in that. And I was just kind of like, I want to see what's up over there. 
So I ended up taking a couple individual patients and doing a group over there. And I learned that there's really no evidence-based treatment for people who have um, non-consensual sexual behavior in their lives. Um, we don't have a lot of ways of understanding if they're positively impacted by treatment, understanding if they um, are really able to change. We don't have a lot of assessment measures. And there's a lot of questions about the constitutionality of ACPTC in the first place. Mm -hmm. Nobody really brings up those questions because they're sex offenders and yeah. nobody wants to talk about that. Um, but, you know, they serve their prison time first and they um, serve quite long prison sentences and then they are assessed on in some questionable ways mm -hmm. as to their mm -hmm. likelihood of reoffending. Um, they basically do a lie detector for your penis. <laughs> wow. Um, it's called a penile plethysmograph, and they use that to assess if they are likely to reoffend or not, um, which there's not a lot of support at all yeah. for the accuracy of that measure. And, I mean, there are other measures, too. There's a lot of psychiatric testing. You know, I, I'm not an expert in this, so I don't want to say, like, I know all the things. Um, but there are, so after they serve their prison sentence, if they're determined to still be highly likely to reoffend, then they go to ACPTC, and they can be there for the rest of their lives wow. after prison. So there's, you know, I'm not here to, like, make any philosophical arguments or be in favor of sex offenders by any means. But I'm just saying that there's a constitutional question of if you serve your time, uh, can we really keep you for the rest of your life? Somewhere else, yeah. Non-consensually. Non um, it's a big question. Yeah. Nobody asks it. Well, I'm sure some people do. But anyway, <laughs> so this is a long story. So I kind of became interested in um, just working with sexuality a little bit more from that experience. Uh, I didn't I didn't love the non-consensual part. I wasn't really wanting to work with that per se. Um, but I did become interested in sexuality-related work and also realized that a lot of people don't want to do that work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it took me a few years to kind of get my LCSW and figure myself out. And then I went and... F and a friend of mine sent me a podcast episode on sex therapy. Mm. If you are interested in this more, uh, there's a podcast called Sex with Strangers, and he did an episode on sex therapy that's really excellent. So mm. my friend sent me that, like, hey, you might be interested in this. Uh, my speech therapist friend. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and I loved it. And I was at a place in my life where I was kind of in transition and I wanted to do something new and different. And so I just looked up what it took to become a sex therapist. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I found the University of Michigan. So to become a sex therapist, you have to have um, a certain number. Well, to become certified, you have to have a certain number of um, continuing education. Uh, the number is going to escape me. It's in the 200s. Mm -hmm. You have to have a certain number of CEUs in in specific areas. Um, you can get them through going to your own conferences and finding your own ASECT-approved events, or you can get them through a program that just does everything in an, oops, in an organized way for you. Uh, and so University of Michigan has a program. I think it's fully online now because of COVID. Mm -hmm. I actually went to Michigan for it um, back and forth on the weekends for a wow, year. Yeah. But <laughs> Um, but now I think it's fully online. But also, there this is super exciting. There's an institute in Tucson where um, they are doing the training now that opened a couple of years ago. And um, it's called ISEE, -E, and I will not remember what that stands for for my life. The Institute for Sexual Enlightenment and Education, maybe? That will also be in the website resources after yeah. this episode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but it's a fantastic 
organization, and it's right there in Tucson. They're fully online now too, I think, but they will offer some in-person learning in Tucson for folks who want to go down there. So those are great ways. There's also um, one in San Francisco. So those are all great ways to get all of the CEs that you need. And then you also have to do 300 client hours and 50 supervision hours. Um, the supervision hours can be with any supervisor in the country. So you don't have, it's not like your LCSW where they have to be licensed here. Um, you can get your sex therapy supervision anywhere. Um, I'm hoping to be able to provide it within the next year or so. Um, there isn't, I think there's someone in Tucson who's maybe able to do it. Um, but you can find all that information on the ASAP How long website. does it usually take? I mean, it took me, I want to say, two years. Okay. So you can do the supervision while you're getting the education mm -hmm. hours as well. So you don't have to wait until you're done with the training mm -hmm. to do the supervision, which is kind of nice. So while I was at Michigan, I was also getting supervision. Mm -hmm. So I want to say I did it. I finished everything in like two years. Okay. Um, I don't think they let you do it in less than, I forget if it's a year and a half or two years also, but you have to have a certain period of time where you're practicing. So that's the process. And you can go to ASEC.org and they will give you all the information. Yeah. Awesome. So as always, all of the wonderful resources mentioned in today's episode will be listed on our website. Yeah. Any closing remarks? I did want to make it clear, because I'm not sure if I did, that uh, sex therapists don't work with non-consensual sexual behavior. Okay. So like I was talking about my sex offender soapbox a little bit, um, but I am, you know, I don't work with sex offenders. Uh, there are some places here who do, but the state laws are very um, specific about it. Mm -hmm. And so folks who have uh, offended, folks who have non-consensual sexual behavior, um, those like we can't work with that because we have to follow all of the state laws and we have you know it's just a different level of training and different things that you need to be able to work effectively with that so sex therapists we don't work with that when we talk about out of control sexual behavior it is still consensual mm -hmm. so it's folks who are engaging in consensual sexual behaviors that feel out of their control for various reasons so that's an important distinction that i forgot to make until just now yeah well thank you for mm -hmm. yeah thank you for making that clarification <laughs> yeah well it has been Wonderful. Um, I've learned a lot. I think yeah. I have a lot more questions that I <laughs> like to ask, uh, but that'll yeah. probably be uh, another conversation. Yeah. Um, this is great. Thank you for thank you for joining us today. And uh, if people want to connect with you, um, do you have maybe like a LinkedIn page or a website or social media or anything? W where can folks um, connect with you if they want to? Yeah, my website is uh, azsecs.com. Right? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> um, so I'm sure that can go wherever things yes, go. Yes, we'll include in the resources. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Um, so that's the website for my private practice. Um, I also do some workshops in the community sometimes. Um, I do some sexuality education work as well. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm out there. Reach out to me. I'm happy to connect. And it's been fun being here. We can always have a follow-up if you ever want to. Yeah, I'd love to. Yes. Well, as always, uh, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook. Watch our reels. Oh, watch our reels. We're yes. very funny people. <laughs> if you didn't know that. They are. They are. I can vouch. Um, and if you have any comments, you can always uh, drop your your comments or your questions on, on the comments on the Instagram post of this episode and the Facebook post as well. Or email us at or info at socialworkersbreakroom.com. Yes, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>